welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a composer, arranger, educator, and Grammy Award-winning trombonist from New Orleans, Delfeo Marcellus. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we have one of the legends with us, a Marcellus with us. Sir, please introduce yourself to the people, and then we'll get into it. Delphio Marcellus Esquire. Short and sweet. I like it. <laughs> you want me to say more? I'm Delphio Marcellus. I'm from New Orleans. I play trombone. I produce records. I uh, started Uptown Music Theater in 2000, started Uptown Jazz Orchestra in 2008. We have true nonprofit organizations who live up to that name. And uh, in 2020, we started KNOMA, Keep New Orleans Music Alive, which was uh, our way to provide emergency relief to the native New Orleans culture bearers. And we uh, were able to grant 410 artists, black masking Indians, social aid and pleasure uh, individuals, or you would say second line dancers and also musicians. And that brings us up to date. Nice. <laughs> well, first thing I do want to ask some questions on is like, I did not know your grandfather what, had that type of a repertoire also in the community. So he was one of yeah, the first well, people know, to have a my, guest. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, my, my grandfather was a, a, a Republican so he was really business minded in that respect. And he was the first one to manage, my understanding is the first black man to manage his own SO station. And it was on, you know, South Claiborne Avenue. And that's one of the big differences between New Orleans and a place like Mississippi, Alabama. You know, it wouldn't happen there. They would have shut it down, they'd have burned it down or something. But it wasn't a lot of opportunity. But if you were really, really on top of the game, with the whole segregation thing, you could still make your way in New Orleans. And we see that, you know, back through the 1800s. We'll go a little more into that because this is me personally being curious. And then we go more back yeah, into true. music. Is like, but yeah, so my grandfather, we called him Papa. His name was Ellis Marcellus Sr. Yes. And he really did not want my dad to play music. He was totally against. He thought it was a joke. Like most people, most black folk was like, music, come on, man. Are you serious? Why don't you get a real job? In addition to the gas station, he owned the Colored Motel. So when Martin Luther King came to New Orleans, he had to stay at the Marcellus Mansion. It was actually just outside of New Orleans, uh, Shrewsbury Road. I think that's just right before you get to Kenner. Maybe it was in Metairie. Uh, right right out there by the levee. And he, he was a proud man, man. The building got... He couldn't afford to keep it up. They wanted to buy the building. They wanted to buy the land. He wouldn't sell it. He said, no, no, he wouldn't. And, uh, you know, I didn't really know much about him. He, he kind of kept to himself. And uh, he didn't didn't want... He, my dad wrote the song Swinging at the Haven because my grandfather allowed him to open up a music club. I think he said it lasted for a week or a night or something. Nobody showed up, so they said, no, we're shutting this down. <laughs> And uh, yeah, he was just, he was a businessman. He was practical. You know, he's pragmatic. He wasn't about all of the, the uh, uh, okay. emotion of what something is. So then when your father said he was going to, or 
was attempting to be a jazz artist. He didn't like it at all, and he just let it go. What nothing he could do, you know. He like okay, you you a grown man, you gotta. It's one of them things where my dad could have worked for his father in the motel. He did work in the motel for a while. He could have done that. And, you know, his father would have supported him to some extent. Once he decided to deal with the music thing, married my mother. I don't think that the family particularly cared for my mother that much for whatever reason, you know. So that was just what it was. So they just ventured off. And uh, my mom decided that she was going to raise a family and that she was going to make sure that it happened. So it was discussions in the 70s, in the 60s or the 70s about my dad driving a taxi to try to make more money. And my mom was like, no, you, you know, I married a musician, so you're going to just have to figure it out with the music thing. So he did teach school, but he played music. He didn't have any gigs. You know, he's playing modern jazz in New Orleans. Nobody want to hear that. They want to hear Fats Domino. They want to hear Alan Toussaint. They want to hear Irma Thomas. They want to have a good time. They want to hear the meters. And they say, Alice Marcellus. The musicians respected him. But, you know, as far as really playing modern jazz, it was like real life. Like, we don't live in real life. Like, now students can go to school and they can have no kind of business plan or no kind of money. Just, oh, I like jazz. I like to improvise. I want to play. And they can just do that, man. My dad lived the real life of people. He never had gigs. He never complained. That's another big difference. We, we the complainers, my generation and forward is like, we, we love to complain. My dad never complained, man. He just, mm, this is what it is. Okay. You know what I'm saying? No, I... Yeah, he just, that's who he was. He he was he was in the bed with COVID. He had to know he didn't have long left. He wasn't complaining. He said, okay. okay. I just, it's just a different kind of a disposition, man. The, the further we get away from when people didn't have electricity, the weaker, the softer everybody gets. We like risk real soft right now. And at a certain point, you just... So it's great to know individuals like him and his father. You know, his father grew up. There wasn't no indoor plumbing, man. And they was like... You know, they, that's another breed of, you look at pictures of people from the 1800s, man, the men, they just, the hands is bigger. Like they just was bigger people. Just, you know what I mean? Not just that they were overweight, just, just, they just had a different stock, man. The reality was different for them. Our reality is tempered by too much nonsense all of the time, TV and this and that and the news. And so anyway, but my grandfather, he was, he was old school. He was, he's about the business, you know, he wasn't about any of the nonsense. Okay. Also, congrats to your father finally getting a Grammy. Exceptions. Yeah, man, I know he probably doesn't give, care, but the flowers when they're here. You know, it's like your dad's dead and gone now. We're giving him this award. Whoop de do. You know, don't matter to us. I mean, I don't want to sound jive about it. It's like you. We always appreciate the recognition, but we're like we went so many years of seeing him unrecognized. And it's not not from a standpoint of bitterness or this or that. It's like. He was just out here serious and he was doing something that there was not a lot of interest in. But he he maintained, he said, this is what I wanted to do. So I'm going to just deal with whatever it is. Okay. So, but no, I appreciate that. I shouldn't, I shouldn't have that kind of a vibe against it. But, uh, you know, from my vantage point, it would have been better for him to re have received more of those flowers while he was still here. Understood. You know, to, I to, actually agree on that. And was your grandfather like, Oh, when your brother won his first two Grammys, like the classical and the jazz one, he was just like, whatever. He could not care less. Now, had they had a conversation about his business, like if he knew what the kind of empire that Wynton has been able to amass, that yeah, he would have been impressed with that. He'd have been like, they could have talked about that. Playing trumpet, man, winning Grammys. <sighs> What's a Grammy? What, do you know, what does that really mean? 
in the marketplace. Every now and then I get a guess and you're already kicking my ass in this interview. I love it. <laughs> Just keeping it real. Okay. Uh, okay. So since your grandfather was a Republican, was the Make America Great trilogy uh, thing for him? Or was it just... What are you talking about? My CD? Yeah, your CD. That older one. No, it had nothing to do with him at all. Okay. I was just asking. I thought Donald Trump was going to lose. I took a gamble. It didn't pay off. Because really, it was going to be like, it's like a big joke. It's like, he went on this platform that's ridiculous. <laughs> now he loses. He won. It's like, oh, God, really? Okay. I, I didn't know how to take it when it came out. He won wasn't so bad. It's just, man, people, I, you know, the country's just, it's always been really strange. Black folk has always taken so much in stride of the ridiculous and the nonsense. White folks don't take it in stride as much. So it's like, you know, the, the country was not only divided really greatly, but it was, you know, one of those kinds of situations where you you couldn't really even kind of make a joke. I still talk about it on gigs and I make a joke out of it. And I can tell some people just like, man, I'm not in the mood to joke about this. I'm like, oh, well, I'm a fan of George Carlin. So good luck. <laughs> it's just what it is. Okay, man. <laughs> one of the best intros I've ever had so far. I'm loving this. <laughs> hey. Oh. There's more where that came from. Let's keep it rolling. Okay, can you get my? You know what? This I brought that up. There's one question on it. So, one of my favorite quotes of all time mm -hmm. from your brother is when he said the saxophone isn't a real instrument. What trombone? He, I know you play the trombone, but he said the saxophone. He said, he said the trombone isn't a real instrument. Oh, he said the saxophone. I was told it was the saxophone. Who Branford? Winton said, said that in an interview, if I'm correct. I'm wrong? I did, you know, I, I didn't hear that. I, okay. I never heard that one. I know that Bramford's always talked about, about the, uh, simply about the trombone, but all I can say is if Winton did say that, if Winton said that about the saxophone, I can only imagine that since he grew up in the classical world, playing a lot of classical music, saxophone is considered a like a bastard instrument. It's not really considered a real instrument in the classical world, but surely he, he wouldn't say that based on the advancements that guys have made in American music, uh, particularly what we consider jazz. So, okay. No, no, no. I took I, it more yeah. like a joke at my sibling. Like, let's just say I'm a surgeon and my brother's a oh. dentist. I'm going to say like, he's not a real doctor. He's a I dentist. Mean, right. <laughs> it could be. I don't know the context and I'm saying, I don't know the context of, if the guy said something about Bramford playing sax and then he said, oh, sax isn't even a real instrument. Well, that would be a whole nother thing. So I don't know it. So, okay. No know. problem. Yes. So before I forget, let's just actually go into your album. <laughs> I love it. Okay. Traditional New Orleans, uh, not traditional, but modern New Orleans sound. What I expected to hear more of when I was in New Orleans last summer. I didn't hear as much as that. And when we talk about like the New Orleans festival down there, I saw mm -hmm. a lot of more modern stuff. I'm assuming that's to get people to show up. I was expecting to hear a lot more of this. So is this more to amp it up? Well, no. So the first thing is, I mean, Mardi Gras music is, is almost kind of specific to the time period. So, you know, this month is most of the time when you hear that kind of music. Uh, you do hear other music that's based on that, based on the Mardi Gras sound. 
But so there's two things. The, the Jazz and Heritage Festival, I mean, really, they have more rock than anything. Like, they're trying to get whoever they can get, Madonna or Beyonce. I don't think they've had Beyonce yet, but they, you know, so it's that to get the people to come in for the high price tickets. There is a jazz tent, and the jazz tent is is often poorly, um, what's the word? There's I not see. a lot of folks in there. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that too. Yeah, not not a lot of, you know, sometimes it's sort of Herbie Hancock comes or, you know, Wayne Shorter, like the really, really big, big names, then a lot of times it, it'll fill up. Um, my brothers are seldom there, so I think Branford had a pretty good uh, showing when he was here. Maybe it's been two or three, three years, three four years. Uh, when we played, of course, it was we were figuring it might be the last time we played with our dad, so it was a good showing for that. Um, but at any rate, you know, it's, it's just tough out here because <clears throat> um, the dominant culture has. Control has controlled the narrative. The dominant culture has controlled the narrative in so many ways for so long that any type of Negro or Black American or African American contribution, it's always been tempered with doubt or a lack of legitimacy. And you find that this happens, and this has been the case with the music. So now we have a situation in New Orleans where, and what that does, it, it works a couple of different ways. So Black folk ourselves we don't value what we do enough. It's always never really good enough. You get that feeling. Like when you go to all white school, it's like, you're never going to be good enough. It doesn't matter what you do. It's like, unless you are, you know, Michael Jordan or LeBron. And I think that really that's what inspired Wynton. Wynton will tell you it's like the idea that the black folks can't play. So he was obsessed with that they can't play classical music. He was obsessed with, man, I'm going to just, I got to disprove this whole myth. Unless you are that, it's like, Man, it's like, you know, whereas there's a lot of mediocrity in the dominant culture that's being uh, embraced. So what, it, what that has to do with the music is we have an obligation. Those of us who are from New Orleans, who are part of that, that tradition, just like you have the black masking Indians. Well, that's pretty clear what that lineage is in the name, black masking Indian. Whereas in the music, it's not so clear. So a lot, a lot of people that we have that are, kind of playing and in charge of our schools, they don't have the right idea. So I understand now that I feel almost that I have an obligation. I love modern jazz, you know, Pontius Pilate, my early records. I like playing that style, but I feel now more that I have an obligation to really represent the New Orleans sound because I can do it. And my intentions are pure. So the folks who come from Topeka, Kansas and from Iowa who come to New Orleans and they're playing out in the streets and they're doing their version of whatever it is. Yeah, okay, you can do that, but let's not confuse that with what the real source is. So that's what I wanted to make clear um, with this particular record. That this is how this music is supposed to sound. I loved it. Can't <laughs> argue at all about that. And right. we'll make sure you check it out because it is. Oh yeah, it's serious. It's, I mean, it's and it took a long time. It's hard work. It's really, really hard work. I forgot what it takes to make. And this record is really difficult because the number of people who really get this thing to sound right. It's almost like somebody that's cooking and you say, Man, I know this isn't right. And you just keep making the flavors and adding them until you finally get it. And maybe you say, oh, well, it still wasn't. And that's what this was, man. It was like making a gumbo over a two-month period where it's like, I'd say it has to be right. And, uh, you know, 
big black Patrick Smith. He's an engineer. We were at Berkeley together. We've been working together. Yeah, question on that. How did you record it, actually? Was it all at once? Was it line seven? All at once. No, no, no. So the band played all at once. On most of the songs, the band's playing, the horns are playing. We did the rhythm section first, and then we redid the drums in some of the cases. Because I have this ongoing thing with these drummers. You know, they when when somebody says to you as a musician, man, we're going to play a jazz gig tonight, then you have one mindset. If somebody says to you, hey, man, we're going to play this R&B gig tonight, well, your mindset is all the way different, right? Because you're thinking, okay, I got to play with a certain kind of intensity and energy that's going to get the people up and dancing. When you're playing dance, when you're playing jazz, it's like, oh, well, you know, yeah, we can get away with a lot of different things. So my thing is that the drums have to have exact serious intensity. They have to be strong all of the time. And, you know, a lot of the drummers, are, they're thinking more of the jazz kind of a thing. Not that they sound bad. It's just a different mentality. So we redid most of the drum tracks. Most of the drum tracks, we redid them and okay. trying to get them right. Because that's the thing. It's a dance element. And that's what the snap, crackle, and the pop of it all. Um, so we pull it together. But one of my specialties has been pulling together things that are not live and making them sound live. Making it sound like everybody's in the same place at the same time. It's, it's difficult to do, but I, you know, it's just it's what it is. I know how to make these records. So I'm going to try to put some more out while I can still can. Please do. I'm looking forward towards them. <laughs> and also, I just have to ask on this too. Would you have Troy play with you also? If you were to agree, or Troy, yeah. I mean, I I guess I could. I don't, you know, yeah. If if I did a multiple trombone thing, you know, Shorty sound is is so unique. He could definitely do it. But you know, it's like you know, you bring Shorty. It's like man, you know, would you bring LeBron James out? It's like you know, Shorty is real. You know. I would hire him on something. Anybody, really. So Glenn David Andrews, that you know, that's his cousin. So I don't have any. You know, I got Branford on there. I, whoever it is, if Went would do it, I'd get him. I'd get you know, Shorty, whoever. It doesn't matter to me. I'll find a place because you know that's the other thing with me as far as the, the ego of it is. My specialty is putting things together. So my CDs, they don't always have to just showcase me and I'm playing and this and that. Man, I'm happy to have guys that you know whatever they're doing. Yeah. So uh, I'm. I might check in with him, actually. That's a good idea. Yeah, I saw it more of, like, a collab of actual artists from New Orleans. That's why I was curious, if you would. Yeah, I, I'm not opposed to it. You know, um, it could be anybody. And, you know, I also have a good sense of how to allow people to shine in there, like, what's going to be the best representation. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing is. So we have somebody like Andrew Baham on trumpet and vocals. He's really versatile. Dr. Bryce Miller, he does a different kind of a thing. So, you know, I'm so New Orleans, that's his wheelhouse. Tanya Boyd can, you know, she's a, a soul singer and she works really well with the band. If she were more of a jazz singer, it would work less with kind of what we're doing now. But it's great to have her because she's a, a soul singer and now she's learning jazz and she's infusing some of those elements. So I would say that to say, yeah, whoever, shorty, anybody, I'm cool with it. Okay answered that question <laughs> so what was the i wouldn't say I the sure difficult thing about it was it just the scheduling was it the funding what just in general what was the hardest part the funding is always jive so i'm not even we don't even bother with that anymore i'm just like we're gonna just make it happen i just you know put put it on the credit card and deal with it later <laughs> um no it just it's just 
when we did jazz party, for example, we had been working with a drummer for a number of years and he just, he couldn't get over that hump. So the problem with jazz party was we had to re-record almost the entire album, the entire album, except for one song had to be re-recorded. So yeah, that shot the funding. This record here, man, it just took a long time it's, to get the thing to sound right. I, I can't really say that it's one thing. Um, so for example, I'm listening and the, the drums don't sound right. So then uh, I might get her around to come back in. And I said, we got to argue with I said, look, man, the drums, I need you to just come on, man. Just so we get hurling to do that. Well, now once he does that, now maybe the bass has to change because the bass intensity has to match the drum intensity. So then we put that down and then we put the vocals down. And then maybe I said, God, no, man, we need the horn riff is not right here. So it could be literally anything. Like when you hear this CD, everything sounds like it's perfectly placed. And it wasn't, it didn't start off that way. Some people start off and they say, well, this is what it's going to be from the beginning. But uh, a lot of what has made our Uptown Jazz Orchestra so su successful is that I run a loose ship. We just, things come together. But there is a price to pay, especially when you're recording for that process. Um, so like, for example, the last song, the Mardi Gras Mamba for the Jazz Cats, we started that off with a rhythm section in New Orleans. I sent that track to Branford. It was with a click track, but man, it wasn't insane. It was, it was way off some kind of way. Branford played on that uh with that rhythm section then i sent the recording of branford and the bass player to marvin smitty smith who was in los angeles and it's like man you gotta over so overdubbing drums is very difficult overdubbing drums is the most that's the most difficult thing to do but smitty just pulled it together man he knew what to do uh so when you hear it it sounds like we're all playing at the same time but then my part was last <laughs> the melody came last so but I, you know I'm, I'm cool with it man folks used to frown down on that process but i'm like hey man just you do what you do i'll do what i do and let's put put everything on the table and he'd see how it sounds i agree when you have a great engineer like i do you can do a lot of stuff like that so yeah yeah i mean we just but uh you know and then the vocals we recording the vocals and then sometimes we have to go back in with the vocals and uh Devel crawford came in and he's the great New Orleans piano player. And, and he gave a certain kind of energy. In fact, the two songs that he played on, I'm like, Pfft. he put it exactly where it needed to be. It was a uh, carnival time and uh, the, the title track, Uptown on Mardi Gras Day, you know. Okay, so since you kind of mentioned it for a little bit, what people who are not from New Orleans and they're trying to play Mardi Gras style jazz, what do you say they're missing? It's not so much Mardi Gras style jazz, first of all. It's really more of R&B. The, the, the real Mardi Gras music is more like, like early R&B than anything. It's like anything else. I read an article, Ray Charles, before he passed on, and the question was, can students learn the blues in school? And Ray Charles said, yes, if you teach it to them. So I think that the big issue is music is it's an oral experience. you got to listen. That's just it. Whatever you want to do, you have to listen. You have to listen. And all these schools, they don't focus on listening. They focus on what the scales are. They focus on what kind of progression John Coltrane played. They focus on what harmony did Bill Evans bring. Man, you just listen. You listen and you listen and you listen. And then, and that's the thing about putting on a CD like this. I know what it's supposed to sound like. And the, the question is, how do you formulate your technique 
to match what you're hearing. That's really kind of what, what life is, you know. It's like a baby. I tell the students this. It's like when you're a baby and a baby knows what the words are. They just can't pronounce it. So that's why babies hate baby talk. Because they're like, oh, look at this idiot. A baby knows that it should be, mother, excuse me, may I please have some water? But instead it's just, oh, wah, wah. <laughs> so it's a similar thing with music. So when, you, when you're listening and you're listening and you might hear something say, okay, I can hear what that is. And then you just have to practice enough to formulate your ears, to develop your skill so that on your instrument, you can get that particular sound. Maybe you get to it, maybe you don't. But that's what the journey is. It's less about, man, did Coltrane play a 13 on that nine chord? Okay. You know? So you're a fan of modern jazz education? Because I have a lot of problems with it. I said it on no, numerous I'm not, episodes. I'm not a fan of, of how it's being it's being taught now because it's like anything else. So it has to be taught in a way that will um, keep generating profit. And if you're going to teach people the real thing, it's hard to really develop profit from that. You know, I mean, I'm like, I come in, I taught at a school for free because they wouldn't hire me Loyola university after hurricane Katrina. I'm like, boy, these students are so sad. I told them I'm going to come and teach for free. I, I taught a combo class for free. Two rules in the class. First rule was no sheet music. The second rule was if you're playing an instrument that is the same as on the recording, you have to learn the first chorus of that solo. So the saxophone player had to learn the first chorus of Charlie Parker's solo. Trumpet player had to learn the first chorus of Dizzy Gillespie's solo. That's it. That's the only rules of the, of the class. They learn Charlie Parker. They learn uh, Bill Withers. They learn Big Joe Turner. And they had some modern, I don't remember what it was that they learned, straight off the record. End of the semester comes, they do the class and the teacher says at the end of the class, he says, man, what did he do? He said, this is the most professional sounding band we've ever had come through the school. And he told him, he said, no, they just, they made it, we just learned everything off the records. Now there's your answer. There's the answer. It has nothing really to do with me. The teacher acknowledged it. They knew it. The students, everybody knew it. The next semester, well, the students don't want to do that process because sounding good and sounding professional is not important to them. Playing their own music is what's important. So people would rather, you know, sound inexperienced playing their own music and their own concept than developing something that's going to take them further down the road. I'm not going to say everybody's that way, but I, I see it time and time again. I, time and time again, it's like I work with the students and say, man, this is a very simple proposition. You just have to spend the time. Um, I so agree. I, that's my problem with jam but sessions I, I don't, and I don't, a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's like anything else, man. I'm not really sure what, even if the students were learning properly, what 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 they would do. You know, like where would they be? Because this music is just—it's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. So it's easier to teach somebody who's going to have difficulty, like the scales and this and that. And but to really get to the true message—I mean, you look at in anything. You look at the the European, the Italian canon of operatic writers. Man, it was hundreds of guys writing Italian opera, and we know five or four. You know. Which I think is cool, but uh, I mean, it's just how that goes. So now we have the, the students are, are less interested 
in the, the really developing the creative process because I think that they don't feel that it's a strange thing anyway. So yeah, I, it's more the students than it is the, the the educational department. You can't. That's just it's the students, man. I asked a group of students. Here's the question. I asked the kids in Thailand and I asked kids at Hart School where I'm doing my residency. Here's the question. You have a choice between A, playing and composing and playing on a song that makes it to the Billboard Top 20. B, playing music that is impressive to your peers. All of them, B. Really? Okay. All of them. All of them. There wasn't a single one. They all were like, and I said, well, you look, man, the first thing is your peers are never going to be impressed because that's the game. It's like everybody was impressed when Joey Alexander played Giant Steps at 12 years old. Now he's 18. Nobody's impressed. Or however age he is. That's just how that goes. That's said, a whole the second thing is, other line of jazz jokes right there. <laughs> well, but the second thing is you don't, you don't want to have a song in the Billboard Top 20 because you don't think it's actually feasible. You think that's the same as me asking you, hey, man, can you make it into the NBA? You'd be like, yeah, well, no, that's not going to happen. So so the reality is what we do now is we frown down on uh, popular music and we frown down on the audience and we think that they're not good enough and they don't know this and that. Yeah, I mean, but look, man, I'm about keeping it real. I'm, I'm about, look, if you can, the goal is to get to the Billboard Top 20. Do I think that I will get there? Honestly, I don't really think so at this point. But that's the game. That's the aim. I'm still aiming for it. So when you listen at this recording, it's a combination not only of the JF tradition and the New Orleans tradition, but also what's going on, you know, okay, uh, so. if it's Lil Nas X or if it's Metro Boomin. I mean, I'm checking them out and trying to see, OK, how can I what can I actually use here? OK, so and I, that's agree, what, I agree that's with exactly. you on that. But OK, so, how should I put this? So. When they have other charts, like the Jazz Week charts and those sub-charts, do you think that does more harm? Mm-mm. Okay. I don't think that does any more harm than the fact that they gave my dad this award. I mean, whatever the system is that's in place, you have to acknowledge what the system is. Because if you took away the charts, well, what would you replace it with? Or you think just don't have it at all? No, man, it's just, look, we got to look at this for what it is. That's what I'm saying. That's the great thing about my grandfather. He just looked at it for what it is. A lot of times we look at it through the glasses of what we want it to be. Now, if I could do something, okay, would I do it differently? Well, maybe, but this is just what it is. This is this is where we are, you know? Oh, man, they told us we could buy land, but they didn't tell us all the land was bought up. It's not fair. Okay, well, now what What next? <laughs> so that's what I'm, you know, that's, what, that's my vibe. So yeah, the charts. In other words, if yeah, that's what's in place, it's like we, we can look at the Grammys and talk about look at oh, this is done. If that's what's in place, then do what you have to do to try to win the Grammy. If the jazz charts are in place, do what you have to do to try to get on the jazz charts. Or don't if you don't want to. I mean, you know, not like it's an obligation, but my vibe is don't frown down and always say all of this stuff is inferior to me and to my music because I don't agree with it. I mean, you could do that, but okay, good luck. I agree. And then they complain that they don't have money or they're not making profit off it. So, yeah, I agree with you on that. Yeah, I'm just saying it's, it's tough out here, man. That's just what it is. But if you're not listening to popular music, if you don't know what your peers like, 
it's going to be very difficult. But then when you're yeah, in some of these universities, there's echo chambers, and then they go months, if not years, without knowing any of the top artists. Yeah, but it's not the fault of the university. Roy Hargrove could have gone to any school in the country, in the world, and he was seeking the truth. So we can't just blame the universities. You know, I mean, you look at the the, the way that uh, the NCAA is set up, and we could make all kind of complaints about that. But the difference is, them athletes are trying to take care of business. They mean, it's just so. I, I don't know how much. In, I'm just being honest. I don't know how much a university could actually do, given the framework of what the final product has to be. I don't know that the way that I'm teaching could actually be successful across the board. Guys would sound and girls would sound a hell of a lot better, but I, you know, you know, to what end? Um, my main concern now is how do we get these black kids and get these youngsters involved? Because that's where any change is always going to be coming out of the black community. That's where the change in culture has always happened in America, especially in this music that we refer to as jazz. Uh, and I had a conversation with Branford, and he was saying he thought that the next major innovation was going to be international. I said, no, it can't be. Historically, historically, it's always come from black folks. It's just what that is. I don't even know why this is as big as just America. It's just so racist. That's like a big thing to say. You know, you know that's going to make some people upset, like, though. I, but I'm like, man, first of all, the... the but the thing that I love about my my education, man, when I was in high school, my teacher taught, I learned, like, if you want to go back to Gregorian chants, and I learned Palestrina, and I learned from the context of, okay, these guys were Italian, these guys were German, these guys were, at no point did I say, hey, man, what were the Moors doing? At no point did my teacher say to me, you know, Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, Wagner, these guys followed this tradition. Uh, now, there was a black guy, too. It never even dawned on me. I mean, it didn't matter. But now in America, it's like we always have to validate, okay, who is the white guy doing this? And it's like, uh, it's just tiring, man. Okay. okay. It's just, it's you very tiring. the bad guy. Who's the white guy that pushed jazz forward that you're saying doesn't exist or isn't, didn't push it forward? Look, look, what I'm saying is this. Yes. Matt Roach laid it out in this article that he wrote. We discussed, you said, you know, the article. And he said that, you know, culturally, black folk, and their experiences where this music came from. So all the major innovation is going to come there first. Once it occurs, all kinds of people can learn. You know, white America can learn it. You know, uh, Japanese folks can learn it. Whoever. Thailand. But the original sound, that's where it's going to come from. And we see it across the board. If it's in popular music, whoever it is. If it's Beyonce or Kanye or Jay-Z or whoever it is. If it's Lil Nas X, or that's just where that comes from. Now, people like Adele, okay, they can do that. Sam Smith, they're going to come in. They're going to make all the money. They're going to do what they do. Elvis, that tradition goes back. It doesn't matter who that is. We got that tradition. So look, what is just what it is. We don't have to pretend it's something that is not. You look at basketball, right? Now, let me tell you this too, man. Like this guy took over at the New Orleans Center of Creative Arts where my dad used to teach, man. And he has no idea what he's doing. So he's got an alto saxophone player, a black kid. He's learning a Chet Baker solo. I'm like outraged. I'm incensed, man, that you would have a saxophone player, first of all, learning a Chet Baker solo. Yeah, you know? I can give you that part. I'm listening for the rest of it. <laughs> okay. That's the first issue. But what I'm saying is, if we were talking basketball, 
you might say Larry Bird could play. Jokey can play. Like they could definitely play. Uh, who's the boy in Dallas? Oh, he retired. Dirk Nowitzki. Oh, Dirk. Yeah, I'm sorry. These boys can play. Yes. At no point would you go to a young black kid and say to him, man, you need to play like Larry Bird. Man, you need to learn how to play like Dirk Nowitzki. That's just not how that would roll. White kids are not actually trying to learn how to play like them. They're trying to learn how to play like LeBron and whoever the current guy is, Michael Jordan. And then it's like, that's just, you know, it's not a big deal to say that that's the truth of it. Now, they have to acknowledge these people because that's the way that they can, like with us, we always say, well, you know, the fact that Arthur Ashe played tennis, now we say, oh, well, now I could be a tennis player. The fact that Venus and Serena or whatever the situation is, you, you see yourself in that. So from that, I get it. You know, white folk at some point, the white students, they want to be able to see somebody and say, wow, like in my band, you know, okay, we got one white guy, he plays lead trumpet and they see him and they're like, wow, okay. And without that, it's a more of a difficult task. They say, okay, I don't see a way that I could fit in in this. But what I'm saying, when it comes to the music, man, give me the best. That's going to be Louis Armstrong. That's going to be Charlie Parker. That's going to be Dizzy Gillespie. That's going to be Wenton Kelly. That's going to be Herbie Hancock. That's going to be Thelonious Monk, Duke Ellington. I mean, the list is long. It's a long list of folks that we could go to. Now, you take somebody like Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich could play. I'm not going to tell a young Buddy black student, man, you need to learn Buddy Rich. I just wouldn't do it. Now, if he likes Buddy Rich yeah. and he wants to learn it, hey, Elvin Jones loved Buddy Rich. You talk about great drummers, Elvin Jones would be like, but he loved Buddy Rich. And I think that might be a lot of times we're attracted to things that we don't necessarily do or that we, that's not how Elvin played. Buddy Rich played really, you know, specific and really precise. Man, Elvin stuff is just like, it was like, you know, water on a table that's kind of got different angles on it. You're trying to catch the water. You're like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? Okay, okay. That's my favorite one, I know. I know, so I'm going to have to defend Buddy. But I understand you played with Art and you also played with Max. You don't have to defend Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich could play, but what I'm saying is that I think it's a, it would be a, a, a travesty if you're like telling, uh, because Buddy Rich is clear who he studied. Yes, that's true. It would be a travesty to tell a young black kid, man, you need to learn uh, Buddy Rich and uh, Gene Krupa. Not that these guys couldn't play, but I mean, if they learn Joe Jones, Papa Joe Jones, Philly Joe Jones, if they learn Elvin. I'm just saying, man, that's like, to me, learning Mozart and Beethoven and if you're doing opera Puccini and Verdi, you know. I mean, what Terrence Blanchard is doing is a great thing. I would not tell a kid, hey, man, learn what Terrence Blanchard is doing. Nothing against at all with Terrence, just like in music. I would not tell a student, learn what Branford is doing. It'd be like, you know, learn what, if you like what Branford is playing, learn it. Whoever, if you like what Michael Brecker's playing, or what Michael Brecker's playing. But let's be clear about what it is. Let's be clear about where it comes from and the folks who are kind of, you know, playing uh, uh, versions of something that already existed. Well, yeah, that's a whole other thing also, where people cover songs and they don't do it as well. But that's a whole other thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, not, look, man, nothing against Buddy Rich at all. But I'm just saying what it is. It's like... I don't okay. see it. Side and question on that. So we're going to leave Buddy alone. And I'm just curious, being the selfish drummer I am, a percussionist. Well, okay. Art Blakey or Max Roach? Who who do you let like me, better? 
All right, Blakey, but let me tell you this. <laughs> yes. About, but, about Buddy Rich. Years ago, I don't even know who. A guy was telling me, man, his white guy was telling me he was hanging with Buddy Rich. And Buddy Rich said to him, man, you know why I never hire niggas in my band? I don't hire them because when I was growing up trying to learn how to play, all they did was with me. At the time, I didn't think much of it. I said, okay, well, he might have said it. He might not have said it. Okay, whatever. So uh, two years ago, I started working on the Charlie Parker project. And I was listening to a lot of these recordings. And I heard some of the ones that Buddy Rich was involved in. And I realized that Buddy Rich uh, 100% said it. And I realized that he 100% said it because it was the truth. And what happened was a lot of the white producers in the time, that's what they did. They said, okay, we got to have a mixed band. So now you have a situation where it's Charlie Parker, Thelonious Monk, uh, Dizzy Gillespie, maybe Percy Heath. I don't know who the bass is. I can't recall who the bass was. And the producer's like, we got to get Buddy Rich. Now, chances are Charlie Parker wanted Max Roach. But Charlie Parker's not going to say anything to the producer. What is he going to do? He's going to make Buddy Rich's life hell. Because here's this young white kid up in here in a place where he really shouldn't have been at the time. No offense to him. It's just based on his lack of experience. You know, now he gained the experience. But you see time and time again, uh, there's a... a a recording with, with Lenny Tristano. It's some of the, the crazy, saddest stuff I've ever heard. Lenny Tristano playing with Bird and and Dizzy. Uh, it's a live broadcast. It was uh, Tristano. I can't remember who the, the clarinetist is. Billy Bauer. So it was obvious. Okay, we had mm-hmm. to had to have a, a mixed band. But the, the problem is Tristano is trying to be hip. Like It's like anything else. You are the hip or you're not hip. Agreed. So it's like, he's just like interfering with, and he's playing this like rhythmically. What he's playing is so ridiculous. I could tell Barry was just like, oh, Lord have mercy. Okay. But this is what the producers wanted. But now I'm just saying all that to say that there's never been a, a lot of honesty when it comes to race and racially motivated things. And Buddy Rich was being honest when he said that. I don't mind the fact that Buddy Rich said it because he's a real person. And just like you have, you can have both love and disdain for people. You can love someone in your family and really hate certain things about them. And that's what Buddy Rich had. He loved Negroes. It was obvious by the way he played the drums. He loved them and he, it was tough for him to deal with the fact that he wasn't accepted. And those were the terms and the words that he chose. I don't think, oh my, you know, we need to cancel Buddy Rich because he said that. Man, look, that's real. That was back when you could be real and you could say something like that. Uh. But I'm just saying that to say we need to be more real about what's going on. We need to be able to really look at something for what it is and not always tiptoeing. Oh, everything is fine. And oh, everything, everyone has to be, you know, represented. A guy wrote, a guy wrote me, it's not related, but it's kind of a little similar. A guy writes me an email and the email says, uh, Mr. Marcellus, I see it in your song, I'm So New Orleans. Now he heard this on the radio. He heard the song on the radio one time and it stuck in his mind enough that he went to the computer and wrote me an email. I'm so New Orleans. You have a line and the line says, I'm so New Orleans. I know that everything that makes my city special is black. That's the line. I didn't write the line, but that's the line. Mm-hmm. The guy writes me. So I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that this isn't inclusive when you say something like this. So Understood. the, the girl that handled the, the emails at the time, 
she didn't send me the email. So it was a month before I found out that he actually sent it. And I sat on the email for another month because I said, man, is this guy seeking the truth or is he not? After a month, I asked Branford. Branford's like, don't bother. Of course, I didn't listen to him. <laughs> I wrote Okay. What, write the guy back. Yes. He said, man, I, I said, I appreciate you writing. I apologize for the delay. I said, I have written extensively. I have researched and written extensively about this very topic over the past five years. Here are the liner notes to my last two CDs. And in these liner notes, I highlight, uh, there was a writer named uh, Judith. She wrote, I can't think of her last name. She wrote a book called Star Spangled Manners. And in it, she talks about how American culture really came from the Africans, how the slaves impacted the, you know, the whites in the South, how they were talking like the blacks, how the food was prepared, how the children were raised. It's like all of these different aspects. So I send this guy all of this. I send him the reference to the book and I say to him, uh, explain, it's all explained why that I said, even though I didn't write the sentence, I don't mind it because it's actually true guy writes me back. Thank you, Mr. Marcellus. I still think that it's not this and that, but but and I get that. I get what he's saying is I'm white. The dominant culture has said this for all, all these years. This is what it has to be. And Yeah, that's a rabbit hole if we go down there. My dad just says <laughs> it is kind of, but it's not. It's like my dad says, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. I've got the research to back it up. I, it's not even like it's something that we can, because I would say, okay, like I would say, okay, why do people love New Orleans? Let's go down the list. The food. Yeah, I don't think that's British. The British food is not the cuisine. is not what they like about it. The dance. Yeah, it's not an Irish jig that they like. Oh, the Southern hospitality. Man, that's straight up from Africa. That's just straight up what it is. Now, we could say, well, uh, I don't know what we would say. The Italians, we would say the French have that type of culture that... The language we would where are we going to say it comes from i mean it's so clear where it comes from it's just for years we haven't been able to give black folk credit so i, I don't even see what the argument is like for real okay I, it, it's a rabbit hole only because we can just say well i don't agree okay i mean that's not where i was going to go with that you went somewhat different that's why i said okay <laughs> yeah well no i'm not saying you necessarily but i mean that's just that's just what it is like we could say, okay, Adele came up with that original song. We could say, man, it was really Elvis who came up with it all. We can go down a whole long list. Elton John, man, that's his own original. The, 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 the colors had nothing to do with that. The list is so long. Okay, we want to kind of hold that, that position. Okay, well, hmm. yeah. That's right. hmm. Okay. Anyway. Off, that's curious. Do you think there was a single white jazz artist that helped push jazz forward? Yeah, plenty of them. Do I think they're ones that innovated and, and created a new sound? No. Okay, that's But fair. there's plenty of them who moved it forward. Yeah, for sure. In fact, you listen at, at and, and it's been a learning experience for me this past semester. I was at the Hart School, and we did a lot of listening. It's interesting to me that the, the Jimmy Lunsford Orchestra, and they had, they represented the black band. They had that thing that the Negroes have, you know, that the sound and the, the swing and this and that. They were really trying to sound like the Paul Whiteman Orchestra 
from the standpoint of the clarity and the precision that they played with. Paul Whiteman Orchestra was clearly trying to sound like Jamie Lunsford. So Tommy Dorsey is the greatest example, man, in the mid forties, he recorded like Ellington's jungle music. He hired, I'm pretty sure it's Cy Oliver. And I got to get this CD, man. But it's something where if you heard it, you would really think it was Ellington because what Tommy Dorsey understood was his band was more of a society band. The white bands were more like society bands. They weren't actually jazz bands. As the music started to shift, they were trying to figure, it's not any different from what's going on today. Only from the standpoint of, man, rap came in and now rap is everything. You got rap with country songs. That sound has been infused. So it's like, uh, you look, let's go to the 1800s, all right? What was the music? Okay. We're here in America. The music was going to be a version of what they knew from Europe. Or it was going to be something new. What did we have new? The Native Americans had their own thing, which I think was a probably too insular for folks to really grab hold of it. Now the Africans came up with their thing, and are, now all of a sudden the thing starts to change. So you have these bands. From the ragtime. Tommy Dorsey understood that by his musicians learning what Duke Ellington's band knew, it would make them greater musicians. And that's the aim. And that's what musicians are not aiming to become greater musicians. Tommy Dorsey had, had hit records, man. He knew that he could get the white sound and get the white singer and do that thing. He understood what that game was, but he was so great that he understood. It was important to him. Number one records, in my opinion, from looking at the tra trajectory of his career, number one isn't what he was looking for. He was looking to be truly the greatest. You know, he's one of the top trombone players in the history of the instrument. Mm -hmm. Tommy Dorsey, like he literally is like, they ain't but four or five cats that could actually play any more trombone better than him. But he understood just having, you know, kind of the all white band. And it's not what the limitations were. So he was like, man, we need to work out what these Negroes are doing. Paul Whiteman, too. You can see as the, the years go on, they understand this is the new sound. This is what we need to address. Okay. So, you know, that's not what we have today. So that's not. Now we don't have that. We don't have the acknowledgement of the, the, uh, the accomplishments and the advancements of the Negroes. We have something else now. That's a whole other thing, but <laughs> yeah. so yeah. question on this. So what do people, especially the university kids, misunderstand about the music world the most? Are you saying it's that? The music world? Yes, the music world. So they come out of university, they come out of the heart school and they're performing. What do they misunderstand or get wrong? I think that they don't, want to play for audiences. They don't think that they can. I think the big problem is that they're, they're too arrogant and lack the humility. Like everybody just wants to do what they want to do. And in black culture, we have a long history. Not that everybody black has a certain type of humility, but we have a much longer uh, um, uh, generationally, we have a longer line of folks who were forced to be humble. And yeah, they didn't want to wash them clothes all day. They didn't want to, you know, push that mop and that broom, but that was the option that they had. So when you have somebody like Louis Armstrong who understands the difference between him playing trumpet and singing and what job he would have if he didn't, then the joy that he expresses is real. It's a real thing. It's different from, you know, daddy won't let me take over the business or I can't get a car and they got me a Mercedes and I wanted a Lexus or it's not that kind of a thing. So what I find is that the students don't have the humility 
to learn popular music because that's what that takes. I'm saying what I'm saying is, in other words, you are being gracious and to people who who don't know anything about music, and you are saying, okay, you like Lil Nas X? Okay, let me check out what Lil Nas X is playing. Let me actually learn this song. We think that it's be it's beneath us as as quote jazz students. And I'm not saying that you have to play that. I'm just saying you need to know what it is. You need to be able to play it. But somehow we got in, in this whole thing where it's like, no, that's beneath us. And you look all over the world. Uh, who's the brother that was at? Uh, oh, that might be Nas. It wasn't Lil Nas. Nas was with the the, the Kennedy Center. He's oh. at the Kennedy Center with the symphony orchestra, man. It's like... Yeah. Now, the symphony orchestra was not designed for that, but they say, well, it's just what people like. Okay, so we got to go. So that's all I'm saying is they need to have more of of humility and understand that, man, nobody really wants to hear what you're playing. I give you that. What a question for me, once again, do you consider rap music? Hmm? Do you consider rap music? Rap has music. Yeah, for sure. It is. I mean, it has rhythm. It has different things. Uh, it, it's difficult um, when you listen to it only from a mostly from a rhythmic standpoint of view. But if you listen at at change in music has always been rhythmic, man. It's not been harmonic. You listen at what Bach was playing, man. All the harmony Bach knew. <laughs> Bach knew the hell out of some harmony. But from Bach to Mozart, there's a shift in the rhythmic understanding. Now there was some harmonic shift as well. Mozart to Beethoven. It was a shift in the in uh, rhythmic understanding. Beethoven or Wagner. It's always a shift. Now, there are some harmonic complexities too, but that is not the primary. The primary is never is never harmonic, it's rhythmic. So from that standpoint of view, yeah, for sure, rap is, is music, um, but it's more just from the rhythmic aspect. Like once you combine the rhythmic with the harmonic, you see, that's when you get the real great change. Stravinsky. You know, you get things that are are very unique. But uh, man, I did it with with the with the school. I when we said, okay, what's the top ten songs on Billboard and whatever they were, we put them up, nasty lyrics and all. And I'm letting the students listen to it, and I say, now, is there anything about this production that you can use? And you know, one girl started going into, well, they've got TikTok videos. I said, no, 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 I don't care about all that. I'm talking about what did you just hear? Well, they're trying to cater to a certain demographic. I'm not asking you that. I'm asking you of the music. Like, it's a very simple question. And one of the students, he's a pianist, and he said, well, I like the way that they they use like an op, an, an orchestral sound. He said, so maybe I could do that. And another one said, well, there's a certain emphasis that they use when they get to the, the hook. They use a certain phrase. So maybe I could... And this is what I'm saying. As music students, if we're going to be true students, man, let's actually study. Let's actually figure out. It's not just a question of the billions of dollars being made in the pop field. Only people who are not musicians should get that. Only people who don't study music formally should get part of that. And we should be stuck with playing in small clubs because our music is so great and hip. So that's my vibe, man. You know? Yeah. So I give you that. (laughs) Well, any, okay, I mean, I'm, I, I you can do. disagree at some point. I'm no. waiting, you know, other than Buddy Rich, but I mean, 
this, trust me, if there was a real disagreement, I would have went at it. And there's some things, it's your point of view. I can't really question it. Well, Max Roach and, and Art Blakey, I mean, I mean, I love Max Roach. was very important for what he did. And, you know, when he really supported what Charlie Parker, I mean, his the way he played, in my opinion, I mean, Art Blakey didn't play a lot with uh, Charlie Parker. He didn't play as much. But I can see how what Max Roach did really fit and it worked well with the way that Charlie Parker played. But men in this generation, I like I like real manly, masculine sound and drumming. Art Blakey was just like a mule, man. I mean, he just it sounds like you know he himself was not like a mule. I'm saying his the way his music sounds. It's like his drumming is just and it's just really manly and aggressive. And I I like that aspect of it. I like something that sounds masculine. Today we can't say things are masculine. It could be anything, and I'm like, no, nah, man. I, I like the manly sound and stuff. So, so yeah, or Blakey for sure. Now between Blakey and Elvin, like that would be a, a, a tougher toss. Like I love Elvin. I love playing with him and this and that. Boy, but Blakey just, oh my goodness, man, or Blakey. That's like the manliest man of that. Okay, so where do you think jazz would be in 10 years? Do you think it'll be more popular or do you think it'll continue being less and less and less? No, no, it's, it's got to be less popular. It's just, it, we're in a tough place now. Uh, and Wenton's kind of set it up to where it's really kind of combined with the symphony orchestras. So from that standpoint of view, well, so let me say, from that I standpoint of view, be, I'm just going to say, I see what he's doing. We need traditionalists, but I think that did harm to us. Yeah, I, I think that so so there's two ways to look at it, you know. Uh Lincoln Center, Jazz Lincoln Center is worth worth a lot. They got a, a serious endowment. You can only get that type of endowment really one way, and that's the path that he chose. So from that standpoint of view, um you know, I think there will be more more respect for jazz and more people are be able to be inside of the system of jazz. But as far as really popular because i think right now people respect it more than they like it as far as people really liking it though it's just going to be tough unless these students really come out here and embrace new orleans music and embrace more of popular culture but there's a way you have to do it uh, it's not just like you see what i'm saying it's like no one really wants to spend the time it's like you got folks like thomas edison and these inventors man they spent all of their lives every day trying to figure out solutions nowadays we're just like we don't we're not working hard. The students are not working hard at what these solutions are. So when I tell them, look, you need to know what's on the Billboard Top 10, man, that's not really that big of a thing to do. Like, first of all, you're saying how simple the music is, how long could it possibly take you? But nobody really wants to spend the time and try to work that out. I shouldn't say nobody. I'm sure somebody's doing something at some place, but we need more people to really address this and more people to address, like, how do we get people to actually like this music? It's going to be very difficult because with the ascendancy of rap, coincidentally, was the descendancy of, is that the right word? Ascendancy, descendancy of instrumental music. But instrumental music is just, it's just really at a, at a low, 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 low point. You know, I think the last instrumental song in the pop top 20 was Candy Dolfer. It hasn't been a lot. It's been 20 years. Bird, but, years. And I know people hate that song, but whatever. I like Kenny G. <laughs> Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 now I'm looking at how important it was just to have an instrumental in that allowed people to at least hear a saxophone. Now it's like you can't even hear anything. You know, trombone shorty, he's singing and 
He's playing trumpet in this. And that. I mean, it's just a difficult proposition playing instrumental music. From that standpoint of view, I don't see how it's going to turn around. I don't see how that's going to turn where people are going to go from wanting to hear words to wanting to hear instrumentals. The other thing is, is just the, the music is just so self-serving. It's just difficult. It's difficult to play that kind of music, man. Like you have to really, really, really be on a high level. You know, you have to really be on a high level to play that type of music and for it to work out. We're naming modern bands in the in the sixties, for example. We're gonna say Miles and Coltrane, mm-hmm. boy, and then it's gonna be it's a sharp drop. Like there were people who were playing, but there's not there's not fifteen bands that we're gonna play. Say these fifteen bands were playing modern jazz, and they were popular, and people liked them. No, that's just not. So I'm saying it's it's difficult to really work it out. So I'm hoping that the students who figure it out, you know. I don't see how it's going to be more popular. I just don't see a, a path to it being more popular. I don't see a path to victory for that. Okay. That is fair. <laughs> My whole opinion on it is that a lot of the people who are in jazz don't have the personality to push it forward, don't have the look to actually help push it forward. And like you said, right. they don't have the sound that is new or innovative to make people say, I want to check this out. Yeah, that part is for sure. You know, jazz used to be cool. Jazz used to be for the cool folks. Now it's like, it's just different. It's like we people equate, they don't equate jazz with being cool. And the people who are cool are not attracted to jazz. Now the guys attracted to the girls attracted to jazz. They're like, I just told a guy, man, if I hear, man, this guy looks like he could be a science professor to boy, but he can really play. I said, I'm on a puke. If I hear another description of somebody, nobody wants to see a damn science professor. Nothing against science professors. <laughs> Yeah, that's the whole that. personality part that I give yeah. you. I mean, Robert you know is saying? Robert Glasper is doing all right, even though Chris Brown went after him, and I like both of them. <laughs> well, you know, look, Glasper, he's like a hustler, man. He's when it's in when it's when it's convenient for him to be a jazz artist, he's a jazz artist. When it's not, jazz sucks. Jazz is dead. So, but look, and that's just that's just his hustle, good. But let's just call it for what it is, man. That's I don't necessarily like that kind of a thing. Okay. You know, to do, you got to go in and say jazz is this and it's dead and all this foolishness that he said. But, you know, if it works for him and then it's a hustle and if people like him and that somehow inspires them, then cool. I mean, I you know, it's like, you know, people who have said, well, you know, I saw you, your brother Bramford would sing and that that made me interested in jazz. I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> that is you are so much in the minority. <laughs> you are slow in the minority. I'm not saying that it didn't happen with 122 people. It certainly did happen. But you are so much. I was just at, I'm in Nashville. I was just at, at SIR. Uh-huh. And on the wall, it's at the walls of, you got the, the, the David Bowie and you got Sting and you got uh, uh, the guys with the long ZZ Tops. Yeah, ZZ Tops. My bad. It's short and you got Mick uh, <laughs> Jagger and you got. The guy that the Pirates of Caribbean character is based after. You got all these guys. Oh, Johnny Depp. Sting, if I didn't mention him. And then you got James Brown. Okay, James Brown. Wow. It's like, it's like all of, and I was like, it's just interesting. I said, oh, wow, James Brown is the only one that made the wall. But the point of that being, it's it, like, yeah, there was no turnaround when Bram started playing with Sting, where now all of a sudden, 100,000 people who didn't like jazz started checking jazz out. That's just not the reality of what it was. It was a, a great move for Bramford. I think he had no choice other than to make that move 
it put him in a certain place where he could do things. But no, here's the funny thing. Uh, I did like that. Yeah, I did like the song. With, I love your smile with him on it. You can like the song. <laughs> Sting writes good music. His songs are nice. You know, every breath you take, I get it. I, I'm not saying don't like it, hate it. That's not even the point of what I'm saying. I'm laughing because there was a TV show. I just, I'm channel surfing. This thing comes on. It's Sting and the Police. And they're saying Sting, Sting and the Police were trying to get into the punk rock market. But they were too educated. Like the music was too sophisticated. It's like the punk rock, which I didn't know this, the punk rock audience, they wanted people who couldn't really play. They wanted people that were like, you know, hey, what are you doing? Come get this instrument. This is what was being said on TV. So they said they had a lot of trouble. And I guess maybe did Stuart Copeland come in or somebody came in at any rate. But I'm laughing because I was at the first gig that Sting did with the Band of Negroes, the, the Blue Turtle Band. I was at that first gig. And it was just very clear that he was way, way, way out of his element because it's like he's almost like Lord have mercy, like real musicians that have really studied and really know all of this. So I'm saying how ironic is it that him, him and his band was considered too sophisticated and too musically knowledgeable. Uh, I saw the TV show and on the TV show, they were saying that the police yeah. Sting and the police were too sophisticated for the punk rock audience. They were trying to get in the punk rock, get in with those audiences. But they were like, no, we like guys that can't really play instruments. We like guys that just seem like they just picked up an instrument and they start because they like the raw anxious and the aggression. They don't like something that seems like it's educated. Mm -hmm. And I said, the irony to me is that when I went, when Branford joined the band, Sting had his band of Negroes, the Blue Turtles, as he called them. When I saw that band, the first concert, the very first show they did was in New York. And it was clear that Sting was way uh, out of his league with that. And you could tell how he was looking around like, Lord, have mercy, I can't even, these are actually really, really real musicians. Like the police was cool, but damn. Now you go forward four or six months and they've made him comfortable. He's comfortable with what that situation is. They understand what the job is. so whatever portion of their musical sophistication is needed is what they're using. Not any more than that to keep the audience satisfied. But I said, it's just like an irony that here you have, you know, staying the police were considered too sophisticated. They were not nearly as sophisticated as that blue turtle band. And it's like, that's just what the rub is. So the students today have to just address the fact that, you know what, I can be sophisticated, but if my audience, you know, it's like that, it's like the chef. Okay. I can do this sophisticated stuff, but it, People really want hamburgers? Okay, I'll put a hamburger on the menu. <laughs> Not that big of a deal. So that's my take on it. Okay. So what is your dream project? Because just off the albums I've listened of you, from your traditional mm -hmm. stuff, from your swing stuff, from your, that's something like your modern album that just came out. Uh, what is your dream project if you didn't have a budget? I don't know if I have a dream project as far as who the people that would be on it, but I do know that I would like to put together something that has all of the elements where you have the jazz element, you have some of the, the, the hard rock, the death metal, you have like a whole collection of things and guys are just going for broke. You know, I know that in gals, I would like to do something that had kind of the, the popular appeal, but also the, sophistication, you know, 
So that that would be the the key to me. But I, I don't know. Again, with the budget, who, who the individuals would be, you know. Okay. But I I would I'd like to do something like that. And last thing I gotta ask before you go, mm-hmm. what is the what the number one thing you dislike about jazz? That's be something. The name. The number one thing that I dislike about jazz is the name. It's like, uh, what actually is that? Um, but I, I guess if we were to say on a a, a a generic level, it's the fact that it's one particular thing, which it's not. And I believe that it has been, there's certain things that are considered. So mm, it's, a, it's a hard question to answer. So jazz can be just about anything. But there are certain elements that it has to maintain. And I'm not going to say, okay, here's the list of those elements. It just has to have that. And if it has it, you you know. So, for example, we got the song uh, Midnight at the Zulu Ball, and that's got a go-go beat. I told him straight up, I want the groove from doing the butt. And it's straight up go-go. So now there's something I can say, oh, this isn't really jazz. Okay, whatever. So... I think the the big challenge there is just the, the name of it. It's like okay, we're playing now. I would say the swing. I would say that like because yeah, once you go to the chang chang lane, like once you go to the swing, that to me is the root of where the real jazz lies. So guys who can't do that, I think it's it's some of these guys, especially the guys on the West Coast, they can play something really different and it can sound modern. Boy, when you get to that quarter note swing. You got to have really studied. You got to know what you're doing to do that. You know what I'm saying? There's other things that you can do, and you can practice, and you can sound good at it. But when you get to that quarter note, it's got to have a certain sound. That's where the truth of it is. So to me, you have to have an understanding of what that is. Not that you have to only play that, but that's the most difficult thing to do. The most difficult thing is to really swing for real. And, uh, that's just what it is, you know? Okay, well, sir, thank you. It's an honor. <laughs> Can you tell the people your social media, your website, how to contact you, where to find your album? Sure. dmarcellus.com, and it's at Delphio. I think that's the Instagram, IG, and it might be at Delphio Marcellus for Facebook. It might just be at Delphio. I think it's at Delphio Marcellus you know, Facebook, but I just, you know, Google me. You'll find it. It's easy. <laughs> well, sir, like I said, Come on, man. We had a tough questions. <laughs> no, I know. I'm, I don't want to keep you forever. It's great. <laughs> I enjoyed this one. Well, everyone, right. this is the end of an improv exchange. Thank you. Have a good day, everyone. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of improv exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.